Before we start today's show, if you haven't heard, after three years of rants and two years of podcasts, Politics Girl is ready to expand. I started this project with the goal of educating and inspiring the country to become its best self. From the very beginning, I was determined to stay independent, to not take money to be someone else's voice. And three years later, I think that's one of the things that makes this project so special. Everything we produce here at Politics Girl is the work of two people. From the research and the writing to the production and the editing, it's just me and my husband working out of our house. And we're at the point where we've taken the project as far as we can by ourselves. So if we're going to continue to do this level of work, we really need your support. If you enjoy our content and think we offer you something worthwhile, please consider subscribing to Politics Girl Premium. Your help will allow us to bring on an editor, a researcher, and at the end of the day, just make it possible to continue doing the work of telling you what's really going on in a way we can all understand. A subscription to Politics Girl Premium also comes with perks. You'll get access to ad-free episodes of this podcast, direct emails of the rants, discounted merch, hosted Q&As, and the opportunity for in-person meet and greets. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Not selling out is expensive, but your support will continue to make it possible. To subscribe, click the link in the show notes or go to politicsgirl.com premium to check out the various plans. I want to thank you for caring enough about democracy to be here. We literally can't do this without you. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. As we know from our episodes on the Constitution, the first clause of the Bill of Rights states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers and third president, referred to the ratification of the Constitution as the people creating a wall of separation between church and state. But in modern day America, that wall is coming down and the Christian right is changing the rules to make sure that they have an ever-increasing influence, if not total control, over our government, our laws, and most recently, our person. When I started working on this podcast, it was because I knew I needed to address the growing threat of Christian nationalism in America. I needed people to understand what was happening in these small pockets with all these different and seemingly unconnected stories, like Supreme Court decisions, parent choice advocates, the reversal of Roe, and the rise of childhood marriage, were actually part of a far bigger, more terrifying problem. I also wanted people who are devoted and loving Christians to know what was being done in the name of their faith. And I wanted Americans to understand that a fundamental part of the American experiment was being altered while we were busy fighting about other things. But the more I got into this research, the more I realized how deep the rot really went. Real Christian nationalists, those who believe that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way, have their hand in so many pots, from education to voting to human rights. And they are backed by such a large amount of dark money groups with seemingly endless connections that I found myself overwhelmed trying to figure out how to properly break down the problem. The bottom line is we're in a lot of trouble. And if we don't wake up to the danger of this movement, which in many ways runs parallel with the white nationalist movement, and now the MAGA movement, then we're going to wake up in the near future to realize we live in some version of a Christian autocratic theocracy, where our laws and lifestyles and even our morality is dictated to us by a select few. And then the only choices we'll have left is if we conform or if we suffer. And if that sounds antithetical to the freedom and liberty America is supposed to stand for, that's because it is. 
For the sake of time, I'm not going to be able to dive into every group, every action, every law that's pushing us in this direction. Honestly, it's a fire hose of behaviors, and I don't want it to drown you like it almost drowned me. So I'm going to attempt to do a solid overview of where we're at, which will hopefully encourage you to start looking into some of these groups or being aware of these ideas that are floating around us. I want you to open your eyes so you can more clearly recognize the danger we're truly in. It's not just our democracy that's on a cliff's edge in modern day America. It's the fundamental way which we function and interact with the world. The plan the Christian nationalists have for us is unforgiving. There is a way they believe the world is supposed to be, a way they believe humanity is supposed to act, and a people they believe are chosen above all others to have the rights and freedoms that should belong to all of us. Their ideology is unbending and dangerous, and the true believers, the ones who believe they are doing God's will, feel justified in anything they have to do to get the America they want because in their mind, it's God who wants them to make it happen. Before we go deeper into this podcast, I want you to understand I have no intention of bashing Christianity or religion in general. I was raised Anglican, which would be called Episcopalian here in the States. And when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was really committed to a particular church. Over the years, our family has found ourselves, like many Americans, drifting away from religion because we found it no longer spoke to who we were. That's not to say that we don't have faith, but simply that we're part of the steady decline of believers of formal American Christianity. We do, however, have loved ones who are deeply committed to the church and know that they, like many others, are good people with good values. But I want them to understand what's being done in the name of their religion to destroy the values of this country we all love so much. So without further ado, let's get into it. I've done a podcast on the rise of autocracy around the world, how autocrats are attempting to usurp and undermine the power of democratic nations, either through rigged elections and corrupt law enforcement like in Belarus, or by taking over the courts and the media like Hungary, or by actively invading their neighbors to stop the spread of modern Western ideals from entering their cultural zeitgeist like in Russia. We see the dictator-like behavior with leaderships of countries like China and Saudi Arabia and Iran, and what the Brazilians were able to hold back with the defeat of Bolsonaro. These countries courting and embracing autocracy might not be the same, but they share the same goals. Power for power's sake, the end of liberal Western ideals, a ruling class with vast amounts of untouchable wealth who live above the law and function in a traditional patriarchal structure. And in almost all cases, these autocratic societies have a dominant, if not single, acceptable religion in which to keep the people in line. If you haven't heard that episode, I'd say it's worth listening to. Again, not because I'm so special, but because this is the world America is navigating its way through. And the group of countries our last president and wannabe next presidents seem more than willing to join. Democracy no longer works for the American right because the majority of people in this country aren't interested in making America great again. They don't want to take this country back in time before women's rights and gay rights and human rights, before the New Deal that gave us workers' rights and a social safety net. The majority of people in America vote for modern democratic values. We're open-minded to the LGBTQ plus community, to the Equal Rights Amendment and the autonomy of women. We want fairness and don't find ourselves diametrically opposed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Most modern Americans would like our government to help us with health care and better working conditions and have them insist that we are paid a livable wage. We believe our children should be learning real history, not working in factories or being married off at 12. We believe in bodily autonomy and human rights and facts and truth. 
The majority of Americans want to take care of each other and the planet, which is why those values have won the popular vote in every modern election, which is why we voted for hope with Obama and our response to the Donald Trump years were record turnout elections to oppose his autocratic, illiberal, anti-democratic tendencies. But the majority doesn't necessarily rule in this country. As so many people who think they're more clever than they are point out, we aren't a democracy. We are a democratic republic, which for the record is a form of democracy. But it means we live in a system with institutions that are able to hold the will of the majority hostage to the power of the minority. And because of that, every single one of those things I mentioned that the majority of American people believe in is in jeopardy. Knowing they can no longer win elections fair and square, the extreme right is pulling out all stops to win by any means necessary, be it gerrymandering or voter suppression or using our media and their politicians to perpetrate a lie that our elections are rigged in order to rig elections. We had a coup after the 2020 election, for goodness sake. That's how serious it is. American democracy is on the ropes, and if it falls, democracy around the world won't be far behind. The values and human rights we take as our birthright will be a thing of the past. But this is a podcast about Christian nationalism, so how do those two things go together? They go together because there is a direct line between America's rising authoritarianism, minority rule, and Christian nationalism. Putin's reign comes with one religion. Orban's reign comes with a preferred religion. Dictators in the Islamic states in Saudi Arabia come with strict religion. Look at Xi Jinping's China. Their preferred religion has the Uyghurs literally living through a genocide for not conforming. All of these authoritarian countries are also patriarchal societies who look down or actively denigrate women and the LGBTQ communities. Their top leaders answer to no one and are surrounded by small groups of insiders who are often extremely wealthy and powerful supporters who believe they know best how everyone else should live. You fall in line in these countries or you are persecuted or eradicated. And we have to be realistic that this is the way we are headed in America if we don't actively change course. In the past year, American women have actively been stripped of the rights to their own body. There is talk of banning contraception. There is a move to limit no-fault divorce, so women have to prove they're being beaten to get out of marriages. Far-right lawmakers are upholding and passing laws to marry little girls off to old men. There is also a rising tide of LGBTQ plus hate and bigotry in our laws and our society. These target boycotts and don't say gay laws aren't just a pushback from a more conservative society uncomfortable with change. They're a shift in what's acceptable if you want to be a real American. LGBTQ plus people have always been bullied and died in America, whether that was outright lynching with people like Matthew Shepard or at their own hands because they were so undermined by their society that they saw no other way out. But this is a direct targeting by the government. It's state and local governments right now, but if we give these people more power, it will be a federal targeting of people who don't conform and they won't be safe anywhere. We already have conversion therapy back on the table. Trans people are being denied their medications. Gay and trans people simply existing is now considered and persecuted as grooming or pedophilia. Drag shows are being violently protested by active neo-Nazi groups. In fact, according to the Department of Homeland Security, the number one domestic terrorist threat that the country has today is violent white supremacy which, with its ties to anti-Semitism and homophobia and misogyny, runs parallel, if not united, with Christian supremacy. 
We have a major upswing in mass murders, not just of our children in their schools, but by white and often Christian supremacists who want to take out groups they deem unfit or unworthy of American life. And these armed extremists aren't being shunned by our leaders. In many cases, they're being supported. Donald Trump told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. Senator Tommy Tuberville just said that white supremacists should be able to stay in the military because they're patriots. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene was the keynote speaker at violent white supremacist Nick Fuentes' conference, and Trump had him to Mar-a-Lago for dinner. We've seen the Nazis at Charlottesville chanting, Jews will not replace us, and active screaming Nazis waving swastika flags at rallies around the country. These people aren't being shunned. They're being further radicalized by our media and American political and thought leaders who keep telling them their country is being stolen and they have to fight to take it back. There is an entire group of people who believe this is their last chance to save their country and protect it from a woke liberal mind virus that's corrupting their children. It's not a fluke that Donald Trump chose Make America Great Again as his slogan. The people he's courting are people who want to go back, back to a time where it was better for them, specifically white American Christians and the values and lifestyle that came with that. They see the writing on the wall and recognize that their idea of what an American is and who America is really for is shifting, and that makes them afraid. And when people are afraid and feel backed into a corner, that's when they're the most dangerous. I've said it before, America is at a crossroads. We could go one of two ways. If it was a scale, the majority of us would prevail, but it's not. It's a chosen path. So the majority of us must choose the direction we want to go and then work our asses off to get there. Unfortunately, we're cluing in a bit late. We're about 40 years behind in this battle. Now, that doesn't mean we can't win. It just means it's going to take more work. The far right and the Christian white supremacists have been working behind the scenes for a long time to be this close to seizing power without the majority. But while they are really close to taking it all, we are also so close to the working, pluralistic, multicultural democracy that we tell everyone we are. That's why those who would take us back are so worried, throwing Hail Mary pass after Hail Mary pass to shut us all down. It comes down to what we do at this moment in time. To be clear, Donald Trump is not a Christian nationalist. A white nationalist, probably. A criminal narcissist, definitely. But his mission aligns with the Christian nationalists. They will use each other to get power, just like the Republican Party and the evangelicals used each other to get power. If Christian nationalists want us to go back to white Christian neighborhoods where women dressed like Jackie O and knew their place, your gay kids stayed closeted, black people made themselves scarce, and white Christian men were on top of the food chain, then concessions will have to be made. Sure, True believers and a man who literally represents the seven deadly sins in one person are strange bedfellows, but they'll both take what they can get. In the last presidency, Trump was rich and powerful and untouchable by the law, and the Christians got their judges and the end of abortion. His next presidency, or Ron DeSantis's, would give them the end of gay and women's rights, the subjugation of minorities and other religions, and a return to white Christian dominance. For the record, we would almost certainly also get an oligarchy and a return to the era of the robber baron, where the poor are subjugated by the rich and women are subjugated by men, but it seems like most mega-voters won't understand that danger until it's too late. Which is why those of us who do see this crisis for what it is must be more vocal, more active, and more defiant in making sure these plans never come to pass. Let's back it up a bit. 
Americans United for Separation of Church and State recently published an article entitled, Is America a Christian Nation? And they say if people are making the assertion that we're a Christian nation simply by noting that Christianity is the most prevalent religion in America, then sure, they might have a point. Pew Research Center says that 63% of U.S. adults identify as Christians. But America's religious demographics are constantly changing, and the religious diversity has greatly expanded since our nation's founding. The number of Jewish people has increased. We have more Muslims living here than ever. America is increasingly welcoming high numbers of Hindus and Buddhists. And of course, the fastest growing segment of America says they have no religious faith at all, that they identify as atheists or agnostic or humanists. In fact, according to some scholars, America has over 2,000 distinct religious groups and denominations coexisting around the country. But Americans United for Separation of Church and State points out that when people refer to America as a Christian nation, they mean more than Christians are the most represented faith. They mean the United States was designed to be Christian and that our laws should enforce the doctrines of Christianity. But historically, that's simply not true. To be clear, the U.S. Constitution is a wholly secular document. There is no mention of Christianity or Jesus Christ in the entire thing. In fact, the Constitution refers to religion only twice, once in the First Amendment, which states, as I said before, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, and in Article 6 of the original Constitution, which prohibits religious tests for public office. So the framers literally wrote into the founding documents that you could be whatever religion you wanted to make our laws. So there is no way to extrapolate from that that our laws are supposed to be based on the Christian faith. In fact, religiously speaking, our most recent Congress doesn't even really reflect modern America at all, with 88% of them identifying as Christian. Our current lawmakers look and behave far more like some throwback to America's past, just like our Supreme Court doesn't remotely represent modern America, with six of the nine justices being devoted hardcore Catholics, one being a liberal Catholic, and the other two being Jewish and Protestant. As the Americans United for Separation of Church and State points out, the Founding Fathers didn't create a secular government because they didn't like religion. In fact, most of them were believers. But they were aware of the dangers of having a powerful state support or requiring an official religion. They had studied, and many of them had even seen firsthand, religious wars and religious persecutions, and they wanted none of that for our new nation. In fact, the American colonial period had certain colonies making alliances between religion and government, and it really hadn't worked out. Some colonies had taxed all their citizens to support officially established churches, whether the people were members of the church or not. Some colonies limited public office to only Christians, with dissenters facing imprisonment and torture and death. These, and so many other situations, led to understandable anger and resentment and divisiveness between the people and their government. Many colonists wanted to end the compelled support for religion, and those who led this movement were not themselves anti-religion. Again, many were members of the clergy or people of deep faith. But they argued that true faith didn't need support from the government. In fact, that relationship undermined faith in general. Over time, respect for religious pluralism really became the norm in colonial America. And when Thomas Jefferson spoke of the unalienable rights endowed by our creator in the Declaration of Independence, he deliberately used generic religious language so that all the religious groups of the time could be included. While some of our country's founders believed that the government should be based in Christianity, it wasn't a winning position. 
In Virginia, Patrick Henry, the founding father best known for saying, give me liberty or give me death, argued that taxes should support Christian churches, but he and his supporters were in the minority. And though they couldn't get tax dollars to support the church, they had to be content with churches not being taxed, which has been the case since our nation's founding. In 1786, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and their allies passed the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberties, ending Virginia's established church and guaranteeing religious freedoms to all, saying that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship place or ministry, and that no one should suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, and that all men should be free to profess and maintain their opinions in matters of religion. Jefferson was thrilled that Virginia had passed this law, celebrating that it would ensure religious freedom for the Jew, the Gentile, the Christian, the Mohammedan, the Hindu, the infidel, and every denomination. They took that same every religion is welcome viewpoint to the writing of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. If the founders had wanted a Christian nation, they would have said so. But our nation's governing document clearly spells out religious freedom for everyone. The Constitution does not give the government authority over religion, and it certainly doesn't give religion authority over the government. So for all those lawmakers across the country right now quoting scripture to get your bills passed, nope, you really should be challenged on that. Article 6 of the Constitution, which allows persons of all religious viewpoints to hold public office, was adopted unanimously by the framers, which is why, when it was ratified by the states, Jefferson said that the American people had built a wall of separation between church and state. It wasn't dictated to us. We chose it. If we need to be any more clear about the separation of church and state, we can look to the Washington administration negotiating a treaty with the Muslim rulers of North Africa in the late 1700s. This pact that was known as the Treaty of Tripoli and was approved unanimously by the Senate in 1797 under the John Adams administration, Article 11 of that treaty clearly states, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. So then how did we get here? Why are the people so adamant that we're a Christian nation? Why does it say in God we trust in our money? Why do we say in one nation under God in the Pledge of Allegiance? Because throughout our history, Christian nationalists have ignored our founding documents and fought against church and state separation for their own sense of morality and, let's be honest, power. And at times, they have been very successful. When the Constitution was originally signed, the pastors who wanted a union between church and state were outraged. They delivered endless sermons warning that the U.S. wouldn't be a successful country because the Constitution didn't give special treatment to Christianity. In the 1800s, government officials tried to promote Protestantism and amend the Constitution to add references to God and Jesus and Christianity, but they failed. Time and time again, theocratic proposals were brought to Congress and none of them ever passed. In God We Trust was first added to U.S. coins during the beginning of the Civil War, when the religious sentiment was on the upswing and certain Americans in power wanted the world to know where we stood. Many Americans wrote to the Secretary of the Treasury, and he ended up writing an act that was approved by Congress to add In God We Trust, which was adapted from a lesser-known verse of Francis Scott Key's Star-Spangled Banner. After that, the first two-cent coin with the phrase was minted in 1864. By the turn of the century, with the memory of the Civil War fading, President Teddy Roosevelt considered the mingling of God and money to be kind of vulgar, and he ordered the phrase to be removed from the newly designed gold coins in 1907. But there was such a public outcry from Christian leaders that it forced Congress to backtrack and keep the phrase on the coin. 
By the mid-1950s, D.C. was feeling a bit more pious, and the 1955 Congress ordered the same phrase to appear on all our paper currency. In the book, American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us, the authors describe the 1950s as a boom time for American religion, in part because religion represented patriotism during the Cold War against communism. In 1954, President Dwight Eisenhower signed a bill to insert under God into the Pledge of Allegiance that American children were reciting every morning in school. The pledge was originally written in 1892 as a way to Americanize new immigrants that many people believe need to assimilate. But the pledge itself contained no reference to religion until the second Red Scare when politicians were looking to prove the moral superiority of the U.S. over the Soviets' godless communism. So they added the wording, one nation under God, to the pledge with great support from the Christian church, who saw the Christian faith as an essential part of the ideal American life. In fact, not believing in or subscribing to the Judeo-Christian values at the time was often considered to be quite un-American. Every decade since has seen numerous legal actions to remove in God we trust and under God from our currency and pledge, but it's never happened. And now we have people who use these changes from the 1950s as proof that the Christian faith is indeed an essential part of the ideal American life. But Christian nationalism really started to solidify political power in America when one of our two major political parties aligned with them in order to win the presidential election of 1980. There's a myth that the religious right the coalition of conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists have always been united in their response to the moral failings of Roe v. Wade. It's an origin story that's told a lot because it sounds noble. Jerry Falwell, the fundamentalist preacher and founder of Liberty University, used to tell a tale about how he was reading the news of Roe v. Wade in the paper in 1973, and he was so overcome by the consequences of the tragic decision that he decided in that moment that he must organize his flock to overturn this law. They called themselves the new abolitionists because he felt their cause was as pure and justified as those who had fought to eradicate slavery. But when you look at historical facts, it wasn't until 1979, a full six years after Roe was decided, that evangelical leaders under the leadership of conservative activist Paul Weyrich, who already had tried a bunch of other issues to attempt to get Christian voters engaged, pornography, prayer in schools, the Equal Rights Amendment, took up the fight against abortion. And to be entirely clear, Weyrich and his conservative Christian cohorts weren't actually mad about abortion. They were mad about school desegregation and the fact that all the Christian academies that had popped up in response to Brown v. Board of Education were about to lose their tax-exempt status for participating in massive discrimination in order to keep their schools white. Weyrich needed something evangelicals and conservative Christians could rally around so they could elect a leader that would look the other way in their self-segregation. So he started talking about saving babies. And that, to this day, has been a winning, though completely disingenuous, argument. Christian fundamentalists of the 70s were not particularly different from the Christian fundamentalists of today. They were upset about the progressive change in America that they saw as a threat to their traditional moral values. They didn't like the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement. They thought young people were too sexually permissive. They were angry that kids were learning evolution, and they were mad that the country took prayers out of schools. This is actually where Jerry Falwell entered the story. Falwell took the discontent of traditional conservative Christians and weaponized it, founding the Moral Majority, an American political organization, to combat the amoral liberals and the coddling of criminals and homosexuality and communism. 
Does any of that sound familiar? A little like today's woke agenda, targeting our children with gay people and drag story hours and trans people existence. To be clear, the abortion part of the moral majority was actually a bit of an afterthought. It just turned out to be a great sell that worked for them for 40 years and eventually got them Donald Trump, a conservative Supreme Court, and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. People loved to say they were pro-life, just like today people love to say they're just looking out for the children or they're concerned about parental rights. Advocating for the unborn was an easy sell because it posed no challenge to people's wealth or power or privilege. You're able to say that you represented Jesus' love without actually having to help any of the people Jesus talked about, like the poor or widows or orphans or immigrants or prisoners or the sick or the stranger. To this day, good Christian people are still able to say that they're protecting the sanctity of life without actually having to give a damn about anyone who's been born because they don't support gun legislation or helping asylum seekers or feeding poor children. For years, the whole thing was just a pretty good deal. You got to stand on the moral high ground with zero moral obligations. But now that Roe is overturned, it's much more obvious that the real plan was never pro-life, but pro-control. The real goal was always to control women and anyone they don't like and limit any challenge to their own continued power. It's become much harder to keep the moral high ground when your laws allow miscarrying women to bleed out in hospital parking lots because giving them medical care is now illegal. So though the moral majority only formally lasted 10 years, it established the religious right as a major force in American politics and changed the course of American history by getting Ronald Reagan, who was pro-choice and had signed one of the most open-minded abortion bills into law in California when he was governor, elected as an anti-choice conservative Christian president. Ronald Reagan's ties to the conservative Christian moral majority was when the fault lines began to develop in terms of religious observance in America. This was the beginning of the rise of the nuns, meaning people who didn't associate with any particular religion, where you check none. In the late 1990s, America's percentage of the nuns really began to increase. This was the time where it became easier to say you weren't religious, or it was no longer a shock if someone said they didn't go to church. It was also the 1990s and 2000s where young people became increasingly dissatisfied with religion. Millennials and young Gen Xers, many of who categorize themselves as nuns, were often raised in non or less religious backgrounds. But even those who were raised with religion, like say me, found that their liberal beliefs about issues like sexual orientation, prayer in schools, gay marriage, started separating them from the religion they had grown up with. There's also a fair amount of academic discussion around something called the secularization theory, which is the idea that when a country becomes more educated and prosperous, it becomes less religious. And that seems to apply to the United States, where even if the vast majority of people still believe in something, as time goes on, they're less likely to define themselves as Christian or religious. Historically, we're at a time where the number of Americans who identify as Christians is dropping exponentially, and our newest young people are more likely to see Christianity, particularly American Christianity, as toxic and divisive. But instead of being introspective and making changes to become, say, less toxic and divisive, far-right Christians, much like the Republican Party they align themselves with, are doubling down and using hundreds of millions of dollars of dark money to buy influence, be that of our courts, our media, our politicians, to solidify power and control over non-believers and rewrite 
or relitigate our laws so the country better reflects their particular set of values rather than our laws better reflecting the country. It's not much of a stretch to see that they are actively working against the secularization theory with their ongoing attack on public education, what we can learn, what we can read, what teachers can teach and say, and attacking programs like the Affordable Care Act, Social Security, and Childhood Tax Credits. If a country becomes less religious with education and prosperity, then the thought is that they need to limit both what people know and how much we can do financially. The idea being the more desperate and ignorant we are, the more religious and compliant we will be. It's all connected. You've heard me talk about the Lomi before. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps into dirt in under four hours. We understand our planet is facing a major crisis. So knowing that my family is taking a step to limit our personal carbon footprint feels essential. We all make a ridiculous amount of food waste. You don't realize it until you start to collect it and use a product like the Lomi. My dog is a picky eater and rejects half his food. Recipes are made for four and my family has three. My teenager is starving and then he won't eat. Without the Lomi, all that extra food would just end up in a landfill releasing methane into the air. But with the Lomi, I don't have to feel that eco guilt. The leftovers that don't quite get eaten, the vegetables that die in my crisper, the fruit that fuzzed, it can now all be composted into nutrient-rich dirt you can feed to your plants or just throw in the garbage. I wouldn't be exaggerating if I said that with the Lomi, our family has gone from three to four bags of garbage a week to one. I can't tell you how much I love this machine. I say it all the time because it's true. You need to get one, not just because they sponsor this show. I am grateful they sponsor this show, but because it is an amazing product. And Pila, the company that makes the Lomi, walks the walk. If you want to join my family and start making a positive environmental impact in your own kitchen, then Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash politics girl and use the promo code politics girl to get $50 off. That's $50 off when you head to lomi.com slash politics girl and use the promo code politics girl at checkout. Turn your food waste into dirt with the press of a button. Would you rather look at your neighbor's windows or at a beautiful row of evergreen trees? Well, with fastgrowingtrees.com, you can get a privacy fence of seven foot trees that you will never have to repair or replace for half the cost of installing a fence. I think this company is so cool. Fastgrowingtrees.com literally ships plants, shrubs, full-grown trees to your home. From shade trees to fruit trees, they can help you plant your dream garden, build a fence of greenery, or just give you what I ordered, which is a lemon and avocado tree that I put in pots outside my house. I can't tell you how easy the process was. The website is great. It's hard knowing what plants will do best in what location, but fastgrowingtrees.com gives you customized recommendations based on your specific needs, and then they tell you how much sun it needs and when it needs to be watered. Plus, their plant experts are always available to help keep your plants healthy through their season and beyond. Ordering is easy. No waiting in lines or hauling heavy plants around and getting soil in your car. With fastgrowingtrees.com, you order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. I can't tell you how many more things I wanted to order. So join me and the over 1.5 million happy fastgrowingtrees.com customers by going to fastgrowingtrees.com slash politicsgirl and you'll get 15% off your entire order. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash politicsgirl. I'm not kidding. The company's amazing. Go to the website and check it out for yourself. 
I saw a girl online saying, if you listen to podcasts, then you've heard of AG1. And I didn't want to try it because I was like, meh, they're all talking about it. But then I did try it and I loved it. And that's the thing. I gave AG1 a try two years ago because they wanted to sponsor my show. And I couldn't pitch it if I didn't like it. I mean, I love the idea of better gut health, boosted energy, immune system support, and I hate the idea of having to take any more pills in a day, but I didn't know. But just like that TikToker, once I tried it, I was sold. I noticed a difference right away. I wasn't crashing at 4 p.m. or searching for caffeine. I was sleeping better at night and I had better digestion. You get a daily multivitamin, a mineral, probiotics, adaptogens, and a green blend all in one scoop of powder. So if you're looking for a simpler, more cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. That's athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. Check it out. You won't be sorry. While patriotism is the love of country, it is very different from nationalism. Nationalism is the identification with one's nation and support for its interests to the exclusion or detriment of other nations. Nationalism is an ideology that emphasizes loyalty and devotion to a nation state and believes that obligation outweighs anything that you might have towards an individual or a group. So Christian nationalists not only identify first and foremost as Christians, but Christians of a particular nationality, in this case, American Christians. They believe that America is and must remain a Christian nation, and anything or anyone who challenges that is attacking their cultural and God-given inheritance to this country. According to Christianity Today, Christian nationalists don't reject the First Amendment and wouldn't say they advocated for a theocracy, but they do believe that Christians should enjoy a privileged position in the public square. The term Christian nationalism itself is relatively new, but it accurately describes American nationalists who believe that the American identity is inextricably tied to Christianity. So while right-wing politicians have long courted the Christian evangelical vote because they were such a strong and consistent voting bloc, they still realized that their supporters were no longer the majority sentiment in the country. They recognized that every election saw them receiving less and less of the popular vote as Americans became increasingly more liberal and less conservative. Nothing brought that point home clearer than the election of Barack Obama. On January 20th, 2009, when Obama was inaugurated as the 44th president of the United States, we entered a new era in terms of race relations in the country. Many of us believed things would get better, but we can see now that if anything, things got worse. It's hard not to see Trump's meteoric success as a reactionary response of a particular group of people to a visibly changing America. It's not surprising that Trump's campaign slogan itself dreamed of going back to a time where they saw America as great, which, if you ask them, would probably be the 1950s, when women had babies and stayed home and gay people stayed in closets and black people and other minorities were segregated, and the country, as we know, was in a religious boom. At the end of the day, white supremacy itself is like a religion in the United States, and in many ways it functions through the legitimacy of the Christian tradition. Obama was always remorseful about saying that there are just some in America who cling to their guns and religion. And I understand the regret, but honestly, he was pretty right on. Religion has been used as a justification for so many things in America, from racism and bigotry to voter suppression and unregulated gun ownership. 
David Korn just wrote in his newsletter, Our Land, that fundamentalist Christians are merging guns and God and America into some sort of hideous amalgamation. We live in a country now where our children might not make it through the school day, where you can get shot for knocking on the wrong door or turning around in the wrong driveway, where mass shootings have become so commonplace that we barely notice them in our news cycle. But people invoke God to justify unfettered commitment to guns. Former Vice President Mike Pence recently told the NRA convention that liberals should stop trampling on the God-given right of the American people every time a tragedy happens. What liberty is he talking about? Liberals are simply asking for common sense solutions to a seemingly endless but solvable problem. Christy Noom, the governor of South Dakota, just signed an executive order to protect what she called the God-given right to keep and bear arms from being infringed by financial institutions. The law basically makes it illegal for banks to choose not to lend to firearm-related companies. That's religion made into law interfering in the free market capitalism. You would think that small government conservatives would be against that, but no, not if our God-given rights are involved. Republicans are always talking about their God-given right to own a gun and use it in self-defense, which ends up using religion, especially the Christian religion, to justify violence against others, which, when you look at it, is the exact opposite of what Christianity is supposed to stand for, with Christ himself being all about turning the other cheek and treating others as you would like to be treated lest he without sin cast the first stone and all that. We've moved to a place where Republican leaders and Christian leaders have merged, and we can't pass gun laws because owning a gun is a God-given right in God's chosen country. So if hundreds of thousands of people have to die, they die. What can you do? I mean, you can pass laws to make sure drag queens can't perform or ensure kids can't read James and the Giant Peach, but guns? No, we can't do anything about that. As Noam said at the NRA convention, why do the liberals and Joe Biden want our guns? because it'll make it easier for them to infringe on all our other rights. She said this, and the room responded with huge cheers. But again, what is she talking about? Because right now, the only party infringing on other people's rights is her party, the Republican Party. They're the ones telling people what they can read, what they can teach, what they can say, who they can love, what medicine they can take, and what they can and cannot do with their own bodies. As Tom Hartman recently wrote in his Hartman report, men are no longer burning women at the stake, they're killing them using big government. Hartman goes on to tell the story of an Oklahoma woman who wanted a baby, but the fetus wasn't developing properly and it was dying inside her. If it wasn't removed from her uterus, it was going to kill her. She was experiencing vaginal bleeding, high blood pressure, debilitating cramps, and intense nausea. But the hospital, like one in six hospital beds in America, was run to earn money for the Catholic Church. So it refused to provide her with any help, despite the fact that she was at risk for internal bleeding, kidney and liver failure, and even a stroke. So her family drove her to Oklahoma Medical Center, but they said they couldn't help her because of the Oklahoma abortion law. Then her husband drove her to an abortion clinic in Kansas, where she had to walk through a whole bunch of screaming anti-abortion protesters, telling her we should stone all the whores and that she was a murderer and working against God's plan. All this to simply get the medical treatment she needed not to die. Is this how we really want to live? The majority sentiment in the country says no. The religious sentiment in the country says yes. And with the laws that are passing in modern-day America, it's starting to feel more like Salem witch trial America, with women, along with gays and trans people, as the victims of religious piety and control. 
And just because I think it's interesting, the first widespread witch hunts started in the 1500s and were created as the Catholic Church's response to the growing Protestant Reformation competing against them for church membership. The Journal of the Royal Economic Society wrote, Europe's witch trials reflected the competition between the Catholic and Protestant churches for the religious market share. By leveraging the popular belief in witchcraft, witch prosecutors advertised their power to protect citizens from worldly manifestations of Satan's evil. So it was basically, choose us. We're the ones that are going to save you from those evil people we told you are evil. Does that sound familiar? Hartman compares this behavior of the Protestants and the Catholics in the 1500s to how contemporary Republican and Democratic candidates focus campaign activity in political battlegrounds during elections to attract the loyalty of undecided voters. Historically, Catholic and Protestant officials focused their witch trial activity in battlegrounds during the Reformation and Counter-Reformation to attract the loyalty of undecided Christians. So we have always used religion to rile people up and get more followers, and we've always used the rights and lives of women and certain targeted minorities as a stepping stone to power. Also, just for historical clarity, most of the early victims of the witch hunts in the 15 and 1600s were women who performed abortions or provided birth control to other women. This was because children were a source of cheap labor for the feudal lords, and they wanted their peasants to pop out increasingly more human capital. And if that doesn't sound way too familiar looking around modern-day America, you might not be paying attention. Corporations, the feudal lords of today, are always complaining about the lack of people who want to work. But really, it's just people who aren't willing to work for terrible pay and awful conditions anymore. People know better. They have critical thinking skills, and they're asking for more. But if we get rid of abortion and contraception and undermine the schools and education and change the labor laws so more children can work, then maybe problem solved at least for our modern feudal lords. We've also been told that we have a lack of babies in America, so we need more poor mothers with nowhere else to turn to increase, as the Dobbs decision overturning Roe said, our domestic supply of infants. In fact, according to Jessica Valenti, the author of the newsletter abortioneveryday.com, there is a growing movement in America funded by private and public groups to establish and expand a national network of maternity homes that will be run by a group called Heartbeat International, which is the world's biggest provider of pregnancy crisis centers. Pregnancy crisis centers, you might remember, are those who present themselves as medical health centers, but are Christian-based fake clinics that lie about pregnancy statistics and shame women to keeping their babies, only to try and convince them afterwards to give them up for adoption. For years, this group was funded in large part by large Christian-based organizations and has been out there telling desperate pregnant women that they're going to help them by giving them diapers and baby clothes. But to do that, they have to take parenting classes, which are actually Bible study classes. NPR recently did a story on a maternity home in Idaho that basically makes these girls that have nowhere else to go give up their freedom, their phones, and live under a curfew in a highly Christian household. And then when they give birth, they basically take your baby and work with a private evangelical adoption agency to get those lovely white babies out into the world. According to Valenti, a lot of these maternity homes are actually taxpayer-funded, and the funding has only increased since Roe was overturned. So American tax dollars are going to fund evangelical baby-making camps. That feels wrong, but it's only the tip of the iceberg of what's happening around this country right now. If you want to learn more about these homes, feel free to read abortioneveryday.com or check out Jessica's posts on social media. And none of this would be possible, of course, 
without the courts. The courts are the ones overturning our laws and freedoms. It was conservative dark money that funded the hyper-Catholic Federalist Society run by Leonard Leo that packed our courts with far-right judges and Supreme Court justices who are now working overtime to roll back progressive legislation they don't feel fits with their preferred vision of America. The Supreme Court now has six justices who are members of the Federalist Society, the last three who were groomed right out of law school to do exactly what they did last year, which was to overturn a woman's right to her own body, despite all of them claiming that Roe was settled precedent in their confirmation hearing. But the courts aren't stopping at Roe. The Roberts Court, now obviously bought and paid for by far-right operatives, is making some unspeakably harmful decisions that seem to be setting us up for some form of Christian authoritarianism. It's not just abortion they plan to get rid of. They're coming for contraception, gay marriage, maybe even gay sex. They've indicated that they'd like to hear cases challenging the desegregation of schools from Brown v. Board of Education, as well as the validity of interracial and interfaith marriages. This group of extreme right-wing justices are looking to roll back the clock on behalf of their faith, their hubris, and the whims of the powerful people who put them in positions of power. The far right wants to return to a past social order before social and political transformations upset what they believe was a successful, white-dominated Christian patriarchal society. And there's an economic aspect to this too. Back in the day, a single white breadwinner could buy a house and a car and raise a family and take a vacation and even set aside money for comfortable retirement. And they want to go back to that. But that didn't go away because women got autonomy over their own bodies or black people weren't segregated from whites anymore. And it's certainly not pronouns or gay people that hold us back from it now. The truth of the matter is the American working class became increasingly impoverished by Reaganism. The tax rate on the ultra-rich went from 74% to 26% today. Trickle-down economics was a lie that ended the expansion of the most prosperous middle class in the world. Combine the obscenely rich paying less taxes along with tax increases on working people and the wheels start to come off the bus. And with economic insecurity, we see a rise in religion and a rise in racism and misogyny and xenophobia. Tom Hartman writes, working-class white men increasingly saw brown-skinned immigrants, African-Americans, and women as economic competitors. The growing national prosperity pie that had once seemed unlimited quickly became perceived as a zero-sum game in the post-Reagan era. Hartman writes that white men thought if they could just knock out half the population, women being 51%, black people being 15%, then there would be more of the pie to split amongst themselves. Stopping women from having abortion has always reduced our ability to work. Parenthood and pregnancy-related deaths take us out of the workforce. Racism and homophobia also keep people down. And all those sentiments became more mainstream within the GOP by the time Rush Limbaugh got on the air talking about feminazis and cheering when gay men died of AIDS. Many members of the American hard right believe that white Christians deserve to hold a dominant position in society because of their supposed innate superiority and that Christianity should form the basis of our laws. Look no further than the contenders for the Republican presidential primary. Mike Pence is a Christian zealot who calls his wife mother and won't be alone in a room with any woman aside from her. Josh Hawley is a Christian zealot who leans hard into the masculinity patriarchal father knows best trope. Ron DeSantis just made a speech saying, put on the full armor of God and stand firm against the left schemes. You will face flaming arrows, but you have the shield of faith to overcome them. 
Ted Cruz, Chris Christie, and Tim Scott might not be particularly gung-ho on religion, but they do know which side their bread is buttered, and they will work to uphold supremacy and power. Tim doesn't even seem to care that he's upholding white supremacy, so. These people are everywhere. They're at the National Prayer Breakfast. They're in Moms for Liberty. They sit in our courts and they write our laws according to their scriptures. These are zealots with talk radio shows and actresses starting things like the American Family Network as an alternative to Hallmark, which has been deemed too liberal. Look around America in 2023. We have book burning, the targeting of minorities, the controlling of women and the rise of power of one religion. Donald Trump's former national security advisor, General Michael Flynn, believes we're in a holy war. He is headlining the Reawaken tour, calling Nancy Pelosi and Democrats demons and calling for one national religion. And Flynn can't just be dismissed as a kook. He's aligned with people who believe God plans to destroy Washington, that we shouldn't have a multicultural society, but a Christian one. He and his family have already spread viral internet conspiracy theories and disinformation campaigns like QAnon and Pizzagate. He's also claimed to have an army of digital soldiers, and his brother still actively controls part of the U.S. military. None of these people can be dismissed. There is too much money and power behind them. Leonard Leo himself is a member of Opus D, the hardline Catholic organization. He's a member of the extremist Catholic order, the Knights of Malta, who have more money than God. He has connections to every right-wing power player. Hell, he put six of them on the Supreme Court. People who have been researching Leo for years claim he knew that, quote, righteous religion would never win at the ballot box, so he made a plan to take over the courts. And boy, was he ever successful. While we kept hearing about liberal activist judges, Leonard Leo put 28% of all federal judges in America on the bench. He worked for years through the Federalist Society on the right-wing judicial systems from internships to appointments to offices of autocratic types to think tanks and right-wing legal advocacy groups. The whole thing has become an incredibly insular, very strictly controlled religious world. And Leo just launched his new project. After getting his supermajority on the Supreme Court, he has moved on to, quote, crush liberal dominance across American life. Leo says the country is plagued by wokeism in corporations, in education, in one-sided journalism and entertainment, that it's all corrupting our youth, but he's going to fix it. And considering people say the Koch brothers and people like Harlan Crow answer to Leo, that should fucking terrify you. Leo has already received more than a billion dollars from a Chicago business owner to run the Tenio network. And he was quoted saying, if this can work for the law, why can't it work for all other areas of American culture where things are messed up? Leo is building, to quote from an internal video ProPublica obtained on Tenio, networks of conservatives that can roll back liberal influence in everything from Wall Street and Silicon Valley to authors and academics to pro-athletes and Hollywood producers. He says it's a federalist society for everything. ProPublica got more than 50 hours of internal videos from the company and hundreds of pages of documents that reveal the organization's agenda, influential membership, and growing clout. They did a series of interviews talking to people who are familiar with the group and its activities, and the records show that the company's members have included many prominent names in the conservative world. People like U.S. Senator J.D. Vance, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, Republican ranking member of the House Elise Stefanik, three senior aides to Governor Ron DeSantis, a federal judge who stopped Biden's mask mandate, the head of the Republican Attorneys General and Republican State Leadership Committee, as well as Turning Point USA and conservative media figures like Ben Shapiro. 
One of the co-founders of Tenio said the group had a lot of members in the Trump administration, including the White House, State Department, Justice Department, and Pentagon. I believe the work of Tenio, run by a far-right Catholic conservative like Leo, ties in with what's called Seven Mountains Dominionism, which mandates that in order for Christ to return to Earth, the Church must take control of the seven spheres of influence in society. The seven spheres being education, religion, family, business, government and military, arts and entertainment, and media. And it certainly looks like the Christian right is going hard after all seven. Around the country, along with well-known right-wing groups like the Heritage Foundation and all its subsidiaries, there are groups like the Servant Foundation, the Ziklag Group, United in Purpose, there's the Lucien Covenant, the terrifying new Apostolic Reformation, and the Alliance Defending Freedom. These are all far-right Christian dominionist organizations with seemingly endless money and influence. The new Apostolic Reformation was heavily involved in the 2016 Trump campaign and the 2020 Stop the Steal campaign. The Ziklag Group criteria for membership is individuals who have demonstrated a commitment to Christ, are humble in spirit, and have a net worth of at least $25 million. Remember Canada's Freedom Convoy with the trucks blocking the bridges and all the commerce? Turns out the biggest donor to that event was a United in Purpose member, and the second largest American donor was a Ziklag member. None of this is organic. From the truck convoy to the Supreme Court to Mums for Liberty and that huge ad at the Super Bowl this year, it's all connected by dark, Christian-backed money, power, and influence. These people are everywhere, and they have their hands in everything. Frank Schaefer, the author of Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, and the son of Francis Schaefer, the man who spearheaded the anti-abortion movement within the evangelical world, was recently on Joy Reid's show talking about the Christian nationalist movement. He said, and rightly so because he knows these people, that these people are authoritarian. They fear democracy because they know they can't win. What they're doing here has nothing to do with American values of freedom or liberty. It is so far removed from the enlightenment of what this nation was founded on. These far-right Christians want to overturn our elections and put their leaders in charge. They want to overturn our laws and put their rules on the books. And in both cases, they are using the courts to do this. Schaefer calls this a judicial coup against democracy to get Christian nationalism reflected through our laws. Book banning, nationalized history, banning of gay people, forcing women to carry babies. This is all a complete reversal of American freedom, and we have to call it out whenever we see it. Texas just tried to get the Ten Commandments in every classroom in every school. The measure was part of an effort by conservative Republicans in the legislature to expand the reach of religion into the daily life of public schools. When the bill failed to get the majority of votes, the New York Times reported the point seemed to be to test the openness of conservative majority on the Supreme Court to re-examine the legal boundaries of religion in public life. And while that proposal failed, both chambers did pass a bill that allowed school districts to hire religious chaplains in place of licensed counselors. So to be a school counselor in Texas, you have to have a master's degree and have taught in the classroom for two years. But pastors, with no specific accreditation, so like the online thing you got to marry your friends, can do the same job with no experience and no education. And there's no wording in the bill that says these pastors can't discriminate against children of other religions, persuasions, or belief. In fact, the Democrat who proposed an amendment to the bill that said that these counselors weren't allowed to discriminate against children was outright rejected. 
So Texas is now going to allow pastors to counsel gay children, trans children, Muslim children, liberal children, and tell them whatever they want. Texas is literally allowing random religious figures to groom children for the church. And considering the church's history with children, potentially giving access to child predators to have private meetings with our vulnerable kids. So if churches themselves weren't enough of a praying ground, Texas is now going to give them access to schools. All in the name of God and economics. When the National School Chaplain Association testified in favor of this bill, they stated the purpose of the partnership between the association and schools was to enhance God's purpose by infiltrating the system. So we really have to start paying attention. These bills are everywhere, and we have to fight back before we don't recognize the country we live in. Have you ever seen pictures of Iran before the Ayatollah took over in 1979's Islamic Revolution? I understand not everyone loved the Shah, but his removal drastically reversed the progress of Iranian people and cemented the power of the Islamic State. Today, Iranian women are being murdered for the crime of simply showing too much of their hair, where in the 1960s, they were wearing beehives and mini dresses like their American counterparts. Things can change very quickly, but once rights are taken away, we can see how incredibly difficult it is to get them back. Just like the demonization of the gay and trans community in Hitler's Germany turned into the persecution and eradication of the Jewish community, culminating in the horrors of the Holocaust, we can't pretend that a speaker at the Conservative Political Action Committee, or CPAC, calling for the complete eradication of trans people isn't a harbinger of something terrible. Or that the laws being passed to eliminate the rights of that same group, or the history of Black Americans, or the acknowledgement of anyone in the LGBTQ community isn't a slippery slope to something far more destructive. In fact, the revolution the Iranian women and their allies are engaged in to simply be respected by their society is something we could very well see here if we aren't careful. There are plenty of people who would love to see anyone who isn't a white Christian male back in their place, be that the kitchen or the shadows. And if you don't believe in that, then now is the time to stand up and say so. So that's it. We have to be outraged every time a politician attempts or passes a law that limits our rights or degrades our person or forces us into a Christian box. We have to be up in arms when people talk about limiting our access to birth control or education. When we see leaders advocating for childhood marriage or abolishing no-fault divorce, we have to convince our family and friends to stand up against it. As pastor and author John Pavlovitz says, the core of Jesus' movement 2,000 years ago was a personal invitation to follow him in the ways of empathy, mercy, and justice. The people who most loudly claim things like religious liberty are the ones swallowing up liberty and justice and personal freedoms. These are the people who continually broadcast their devotion to God while living a completely antithetical life to the man they claim to worship. We need to see their spirituality as the performative act it really is. That they're using a bunch of culture war talking points and buzzwords to distract us from the power mongering they're actually engaged in. This is not how the country was created to function. This is not how the majority chooses to live. And this cannot be the path we allow ourselves to take. So for every group of Christians against the Little Mermaid, there has to be a counterforce of Americans for free expression. For every loud white person who's decided they are persecuted by a rainbow t-shirt or a Starbucks cup, there has to be 10 of us clapping back that acknowledging a minority isn't persecution and selling something to someone you don't like isn't an attack. They are loud. We must be louder. They vote. 
we must vote more. At the end of the day, it's not even about religion. It's about control. It's about choosing what group gets the wheel. We either go forward or we go back. Pick a direction. I want to thank you for joining me today and for caring enough about this issue to stick with it. If Christian nationalists have taken over the Republican Party, then American patriots must defeat them. Remember, this is not a Christian nation. This is a nation where you are free to be Christian. Until next week, peachy out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.